Big you kind of teased this conversation last week when we were talking with our boys from first form about like Kit said, the supplements aren't necessary if you eat a perfect diet. Well, no person really eats a perfect diet and no deer really eats a perfect diet either. Definitely. You think uh, I'm, I, I'll disagree with that. I am. I, I mean, look at him. Diet. Look at him. Yeah, you, you can tell Mark Freeze <laughs> has the perfect a diet. specimen, a mountain of a man. <laughs> <laughs> I've hunted with Mark, and I—you've seen the diet. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this segment is brought to you by Analogics. Protect your herd with the power of science. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast, episode number 197, Supplementing a Successful Season. I am Tim Chelsvik. I'm Matt Drury, and we have the madman, Mark Drury, today. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hey, I'm excited because people are going to listen to this show. Because Mark's with <laughs> us. <laughs> the feedback we always get is, the, I wish the we shows more with Mark. Mark are always great. <laughs> <laughs> no, we just like to put them on other people's podcasts. So right, their yeah. shows do well. He's booked with working class bow hey, hunter at the moment. I, I listened to that podcast, and I heard you guys talking about our podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't. All kind, Tim. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. It was all about how Mark likes their podcast better. Is it well, any PR good PR, though? Yeah. I mean, in all reality. I sat there uh, listening to it. I was like, what? <laughs> well, if Mark listened to our show, then maybe he would have, he would think differently. True. So let's just or, go. Or maybe, maybe, not. maybe his assessment was correct. Right. <laughs> I've heard the ones that I've been here for. <laughs> not impressed. Actually, that's a benefit for us because we always say that a lot. Mm-hmm. Like we talk about you and Terry, it's mostly good. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it's best if you guys just don't know what's happening. Sure. I can well, use all the fart sounds I want on the soundboard. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of not knowing what's happening, I hope the fire department doesn't find out how many people we have on today's show because I think we've exceeded the fire code for right. capacity. So we got we got a bunch of guests joining us today. We got Mark right? Freeze, we got Tim Newman and Aaron Gaines, all from Analogics. What's up, guys? Not much. So I'm Mark from Analogics. Sometimes I hope this doesn't sound like an AA meeting where I'm hi, I'm Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Tim's with me also. Yeah, Tim Newman, wildlife biologist. And Aaron. Hi. Uh, Dr. Aaron Gaines with uh, Analogics as well. And for everyone that's listening, Aaron is in like a buck killer's cave of secrecy. It <laughs> looks ominous and cool, and I'm a little jealous. Yeah, these uh, these bucks are all uh, bucks I've harvested uh, in Northeast Missouri, and I think 80% of them are better are, are uh, uh, archery kills. Right on. Unreal. The only thing left to complete the picture is you with a cat in your lap and slowly petting it. (laughs) (laughs) There could be a dog that shows up. (laughs) Big lab in his lap. All right. So, you know, you you guys, the title of this was Supplementing a Successful Season. And I came up with that title. (laughs) Yeah. Let's make sure everybody knows Tim does work here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the big thing is, you know, with Analogics, we've been partnering with these guys for quite some time now. And we've talked about it before in the podcast. A lot of people always think summertime, that's a time to get some stuff out. Usually put a bag of, you know, you know, supplement gold or whatever out there. But really, you want to backtrack that. And now's the crucial time. And, and I've learned this from Mark Drury over, over the years. Now's the crucial time to really start affecting your deer herd in positive ways. It's not just about the bucks. It's overall herd health. And so we're not, you know, we're going to dive into the, all those things a little bit more today. 
And, and I think it's important to have these guys on so that they can state things that we don't articulate as well as they will, particularly Dr. Gaines. Um, you know, I always want the healthiest herd I can have. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of times you start talking about feeding and people go, oh, they're baiting, right? You know, that's the first thing they say. And yeah. that's not it at all. So I'm anxious to dive into this with with Aaron and Mark and Tim and and really get to why we love analogic so much and why we believe in it. Before so Before we do that, I think we failed a little bit already because I don't have have on the soundboard anything that's pre-put in here that says I'm a learned doctor because I would have been hammering that sound as much <laughs> as possible Aaron. for Aaron. We'll handle it in post. <laughs> All right. So where do we jump in? One of the things that I think about when I think about the topic is like, how do you switch your mindset? Because I think a lot of guys will start considering, well, I'll put out a mineral, a mineral site or something. They think short term, like I just want to bring bucks into a shooting lane or something. But really, again, we're talking next level. We're playing chess kind of scenario. Well, maybe we should roll back a little bit and start with some of the history of as why analogics is kind of the leader in the industry because of the science that goes into it. So I don't know if Mark Freeze, if you want to give a little bit, a quick backstory on the history there before we jump in with with Tim and, and uh, Aaron on, on some of the facts behind it. Sure. So I'm going to try and do it in two minutes or less. I don't know how, how successful I'll be at that. The history is it started back in about 1970 with my father. And my father had just gotten out of vet school, went on to be a veterinarian. But as family members, we affectionately found out my father had a different passion in life. And it was laboratories, research, nutrition, and building businesses that complemented the production animal um, field. So let's fast forward to about 40 years later. So it starts in 70, and now we're up at 2012. We're into what is now our third laboratory, He's had multiple vet clinics and multiple nutrition companies. And we had that infamous EHD break of 2012, which just blew everything up to the forefront. But prior to that, the, well, I'll call it the third lab, had really developed the first autogenous vaccine for EHD. At the same time, our laboratory was doing a a lot of research on grass products. And for people that don't understand what grass is, it's it's products that are generally regarded as safe, which have antibiotic properties. So at that time, in that 2010-ish, everyone was trying to go antibiotic-free, right? So we we wanted to have chickens that were antibiotic-free. We wanted to have... Production animals, whether it was, you know, your beef or your pork, everything wanted to be antibiotic free. So we were looking at essential oils and how, what oils have the same healing properties of antibiotics. So we've now designed the EHD vaccine. We now have what we know of research for grass products and then EHD hits. And it really wiped out the the wild herd. So at that point, we took what we knew of grass products and again, combined it with what we knew of the properties. And I remember sitting there one day and my father, we were noodling it. And he said, uh, he said, I'm going to remind you guys. He said, EHD is not always the killer. 
Most of the time, it's the secondary pathogens. And he said, if you're strictly going to focus on EHD, you're going to miss your target. And so we'll delve into that a little later because it, that brings us into what we see in COVID today. COVID isn't necessarily always the killer, but it's the secondary things that when you start stacking the dominoes, the tower can't stand. Um, and so we knew that very early on. So my father's recommendation or at his recommendation was to really focus on EHD but at the same time, be very focused on the secondary pathogens. And Aaron and Tim can talk about that. So at, the, at that same time, we also had nutrition companies. So we knew our delivery mechanism had to be something that could be fed. It had to be grassy, generally regarded as safe. So we combined what we knew from our production animal nutrition with the laboratory, with what we knew in the vet clinics, and all of a sudden, we built a product. And I remember I was friends with Todd Green and Mark. We, we all know Todd from Muddy Big Game. And I was going over this with him. And he says, boy, you really got to talk to juries. And I said, well, I don't know juries. And he says, well, I do. And so I remember the first meeting with you guys where we started looking at, um, we started explaining what we were about. And it, it was more than just, healing properties and grass properties, nutrition, we had at the same time gone in and looked and done liver analysis of wild deer and found out what this wild deer population was really lacking. So we brought all those trace minerals into play. And, and we can talk about that later also, but that's really who we are. That's where we came from. And, and now we're in our fourth laboratory um, we're in analogics and, you know, we always get a bad rap. Are we truly science guys? You know, we kind of, I mean, that, that is our roots. Yeah. <clears throat> Legitimately science guys. Look, we've yeah. been there. We've seen all the labs and everything. And it's, uh, it was jaw dropping when we first met him. And it was even more so when we went and visited their facility. And it, it is such a stark contrast to everything else on the marketplace in terms of the science behind it. And, and the reasons they do what they do versus everybody else is, is really focused on attraction. hundred percent. And, and they're focused on herd health, but yet their attraction is greater than anything else I've ever seen on the market as well. Yeah. So it's really the best of both worlds. I've always said like, you know, I've, I've been able to see it firsthand when I have, when I run out of the analog and I'm in a County here in Missouri where, where I can supplemental feed and do all that stuff. So when I have it out, the trail camera, the amount of pictures I get versus one say I run out of it and I can just put a bag of corn out. It's not even the same story, which is crazy. I mean, you always, always said, Oh yeah, throw a bag of corn out. You're yeah, gonna, what could be better than corn? You know, yeah. and it's a totally different story. Yeah. Which goes to that attraction. So they're a, they're attracted to it. B it's really a health component going into that deer system, which I want to introduce or talk to Aaron Gaines about that. Aaron, if you would, would you take us through any supplement gold and kind of without giving away the secret sauce, Tell the, you know, the average hunter what it does outside of the incredible palatability. What's it doing when it goes in that deer system and start kind of in the first quarter of the year, which we're in right now, and then take us through the importance of continuing that in through summer and, and the late, late months of summer. Yep, no, sounds good. Um, so I'm going to maybe back up a little bit instead of jumping into supplement, you know, supplement gold and just talk about supplemental feeding and, and why we do it. 
Um, we know from, you know, feeding livestock, the proper nutrition is critically important for that animal to be able to express its genetic potential. I'm going to reference a couple studies um, because I always get the question, you know, supplemental feeding can be really expensive, particularly right now, right? We're looking at $5 plus corn and a soybean meal that's $450 a ton. And so I always ground myself back to my own experiences and also the research. And there's two studies. Uh, one was done at Texas A&M down in South Texas. And in that study, they clearly showed in their research that by supplemental feeding in that environment, they were, they were able to increase body size and antler growth. And the second study that was interesting was a study done at Mississippi State University at the MSU Deer Lab. And in that study, uh, they showed that maternal nutrition, so what the doe eats, has an impact on her offspring. And so that uh, maternal effect, or what they call uh, epigenetics, uh, is very interesting because basically if the doe nutrition is limiting, it's going to downregulate the genes in that offspring, and they're not going to be able to express their full genetic potential. So as we start thinking about supplemental feeding, it has an impact not only on the doe, but also on our offspring, which affects um, you know, the overall deer herd. And it's something that's not going to change over overnight. Uh, we've got to look at the overall nutrition program, whether it's supplemental feeding, whether it's mineral supplementation, whether it's food plots. But two really good studies there. One was a 10-year study. The other one was a multi-generational study, basically over uh, two different uh, parities uh, in that doe's life. And so as we start thinking about supplemental feeding, uh, if the environment is limiting, it's going to affect the quality of the deer herd. So I think that's important as we think about supplemental feeding is always get the question, well, it's too expensive to do that. But if you're really, truly trying to improve the quality of your deer herd, supplemental feeding is where it's at. And I think, you know, the, the DOD team has proof of that over the last five years, just looking at the number of animals and the quality of animals you guys have been able to harvest. I think it speaks to the value of supplemental feeding. I know you guys use the supplement gold product uh, as part of your program. Absolutely. Now, Aaron, not to jump in here, Aaron, but that was real interesting that Aaron brought that up because Aaron and I were talking this morning. I'm in arguably my third generation starting my, or my second generation starting my third generation of offspring since starting this product. And I've told Aaron what I used to have for a two and a half year old when I started that same deer today, a two and a half year, year old, you can't even compare the two deer. And I don't want to get into inches and all that, but they are definitely a different deer. And, and it, that tees into what Aaron just said. It starts with the mother, gets to the offspring, and then you really start seeing it as that next generation comes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, uh, the thing I get questioned on a lot of times um, here in Missouri is, you know, how am I able to get on good deer? Well, there's no secret to it. I'm just providing everything I can to that deer and make sure their environment is not limiting and put a lot of emphasis on nutrition uh, within the deer herd. I mean, that's really the secret sauce on what I'm doing. I'm just giving them everything they need. So that doe uh, is not limiting when she gives, you know, birth to those fawns. And the supplemental feeding uh, program, back to that Texas study, they showed an improvement in fawn survivability. Uh, the fawn to doe ratio was higher. 
so it really highlights, you know, the, the benefits of supplemental feeding and supplemental feeding truly unlocks the genetic potential of your deer herd. Um, and so it's one of those, um, Matt Drew, you mentioned earlier, a lot of times we're pretty short-sighted on how we supplement the deer herd. You know, about springtime, we start thinking about mineral supplementation, but, you know, my my approach has changed from not only mineral supplementation, but really doing supplemental feeding. Yes, it is expensive, but man, it really pays off. And to Mark Freeze's point, it doesn't happen overnight. It's going to take years uh, of feeding to start seeing that herd express its full genetic potential. Because you look at that MSU deer lab study, when those does were in an environment where nutrients were limiting, there was a down regulation of those, gen of those genes for things like body weight and antler growth. But when those does were provided with proper nutrition, those genes are upregulated. And then the offspring of those animals start to express more of their genetic potential. And that just gets better over time as you um, really improve the environment. In this case, the nutrition of the animals. That was so, the Aaron, let's, so let's take it from that. Let's transition to how are we different? How is our feed different? What do we do to promote what we just talked about? Yep. So in the case of supplement gold, uh, you know, you talked about uh, EHD virus, and that was kind of the impetus uh, to starting analogics. You know, we certainly uh, focus a lot on how do we address EHD and other diseases in deer through nutrition. And as Mark Freeze indicated, the analogy is COVID, right? You know, COVID by itself may not necessarily, um, you know, um, cause death, but when there's some type of comorbidity, that's when we're in a real problem and no different than the deer herd. If there's a secondary pathogen uh, like Fusobacterium or Clostridium or E. coli that's present in that deer and then they get infected with EHD from the midge fly, then that deer certainly has um, a poor chance of surviving that that disease insult. And so what we do is we put a lot of focus on our functional ingredients. Uh, Mark Freeze mentioned essential oils, but we also have probiotics in there that are very specific for certain pathogens. And so if we can improve overall gut health, we improve the likelihood of that deer surviving something like EHD virus. Uh, but for, for us to be able to do that, we can't just depend on things like mineral supplementation only. So all the functional ingredients coming from Mineral Dirt 180, because we know on a mineral lick, those deer are not consuming out of that mineral lick every single day, right? Uh, they visit it when they need it. In the spring months, certainly when there's nutritional deficiencies in the plants, they seek out minerals more, right? That's why they hit uh, mineral licks harder in the spring is because the plants are limiting. So that's where supplemental feeding becomes important to ensure that we're getting adequate intakes of those functional ingredients and those nutrients those deer need all year long. And um, it doesn't matter what we put in the feed. If they don't eat it, it won't matter. And so we put a lot of time and effort, as Mark Drury indicated, on attraction, the power of attraction. I mean, so we've done a lot of different uh, evaluations of different flavorings to try to get those deer to the feed or the minerals so we can increase consumption. Uh, to make sure we're getting adequate levels of key nutrients and functional ingredients that are going to help that deer and improve overall health. 
I imagine this would be a difficult one to measure, but do you guys have any kind of stats on <clears throat> the survivability, the, the mortality rates of deer that have been supplemented with analogics when they are, when EHD is in the environment versus those that aren't? Jim Newman, you want to take that one? It's, it's hard to study free range because you don't know the extent of the confounding variables. Yeah. And it's also hard to study in a pen scenario because no one wants to introduce EHD to their pen. <laughs> so there hasn't been really good studies on that, but the, the anecdotal evidence is from guys like Mark Dury and guys like Lee Lukoski that feed a lot of the product and their neighbors have issues with EHD and they don't have as much issues. Mm-hmm. So it, it's also hard to calculate actual death loss numbers because the DNR doesn't do a good job of counting them all. They just know that there's an outbreak and that it's good, bad, or, you know, not as bad. So they don't get into specifics on something that can be statistically significant versus, you know, in one treatment area versus another. The the confounding variables are just too high. Sure. From a blue collar viewpoint, like I'm always, I'm not trying to eliminate EHD. I'm trying to minimize it because I don't think you're going to get rid of it. So, you know, there's so much dispersal within a a wild free roaming herd. You're only going to affect the deer that are there at that time. So those that are off your property, you you can't help. So Mm -hmm. we as a group in our area try to feed as much as we can in in different areas. Myself, Greg Glessinger, David Lindsay, and we're doing it at the key times of the year to, to try and help that herd have the best chance they can of fighting AHD if you get an outbreak. So I, I love all everything everybody's talking about, about overall genetic potential. But in reality, I'm just trying to save my deer herd, you know, and, I, and the other benefits are great and they're there and they, and they show. But in reality, my goal isn't to make bigger, better deer because we already have that in Southern Iowa. The dirt's unbelievable. And mm-hmm. without anything, you've got giant deer there. I want to make sure that I give them the best chance they can to fight EHD if it hits again, because I've seen it too many times. Sure. You know, I mean, multiple outbreaks of EHD over the last 20 years. So that's why I am so hell bent on feeding and supplemental feeding, not only through the winter, but also right after spring turkey season and on in through the summer to make sure that they have a chance to to do the best they can if it hits again. And I, I personally feel it's going to hit again this year, you know, so I, I, I get worried about it. Anytime we're in a La Nina, you know, that you really go through some dry periods in the spring and summer. And in 12, we were in a, a very strong La Nina. We're back in that La Nina pattern again. So I, I look for this year to be uh, pretty devastating if, it, if what they're predicting actually occurs and we know that la nina is the nina yeah we know spanish that. thank you mm-hmm. but it has to do with weather patterns coming out of the pacific el nino we're generally a little bit wet a little bit cooler la ninas end up putting the weather in the midwest and through much of the country a little bit drier a little bit warmer and that's exactly what happened in 12 sure now there are a lot of counties in states that can't do supplemental feeding? Are, are there solutions for guys that maybe could put out mineral but not feed? Tim Marsh talked about the food plots more. Yeah, in, in that case, like Illinois, you know, you're not allowed to supplement the herd at all. So you just got to rely on more of the other pieces of the management puzzle, like your forest management and your food plots, and just trying to increase overall nutrition availability throughout the entire herd. And trying to put as much nutrients on the landscape as you can. A lot of guys focus on just the food plots, but they're only spending, you know, an hour a day at a food plot, whereas the rest of the habitat could also be improved. 
Uh, I'll give you a perfect instance. We've got a pro staffer in Mississippi, and he's not in the Delta. If you guys know Mississippi, the Delta is where most of the big deer live in Mississippi. He's outside of the Delta. He's in the south central part of the state, but he grows 190 plus inch deer every year. And he's doing things like fertilizing natural vegetation just to increase the available browse. And anywhere you can add nutrients to the diet of a deer, it's going to help. But obviously through the feed, it's a little bit more efficient. Could I have his address and phone number when you get a second? <laughs> yeah, it's Austin Ashley. You can look him up on Instagram. <laughs> so I'm going to circle back to my question for Aaron. Tell us about Supplement Gold and what it's actually doing to try and keep that herd healthy and, and minimize EHD deaths when you do have an outbreak. Yeah, so on the Supplement Gold product, uh, we've got essential oils in that product. Uh, they're going to be very specific. Uh, they're antibacterial, antiviral. Uh, so they've got some very unique properties there, and it's it's a blend of essential oils. Uh, so we're taking kind of a multifaceted approach uh, to pathogen control. Um, other pieces uh, to Supplement Gold would be the probiotic technology. And those are very uh, pathogen uh, specific. So go, going back to trying to eliminate some of the secondary pathogens that are a lot of times um, associated with EHD virus. So we know in captive deer populations, a lot of times when you do diagnostics or necropsies on those deer that die from EHD, uh, we usually find some secondary pathogen. And fusobacterium is very common, uh, commonly found. And so if we can knock down fusobacterium, in the wild deer population, we're going to improve the survivability of our wild deer herd. Uh, we talked earlier about attraction and and uh, you know making sure that we optimize that. So we do have some proprietary flavors in there to make sure we maximize consumption of, of key nutrients and functional ingredients. Uh, we do have chelated minerals in there, so that becomes important not only making sure we we meet the animal's requirement, but making sure those minerals are bioavailable to the animal and they can utilize them. Uh, obviously mineral nutrition is very critical for maintenance functions as well as uh, the immune system. And so uh, kind of bundling all that together, uh, just really uh, pulling together a lot of different technologies that we've leveraged in the livestock industry and, and applying them to deer feed. And uh, we've done a lot of research with these functional ingredients and, and these nutrients, um, you know, Tim and I last uh, last year we set up a captive deer herd uh, in Northeast Missouri to do some uh, further testing of some of these functional ingredients and more of a controlled environment. As you guys know, when we go out to do field evaluations uh, in a wild deer population, those studies are not as controlled. So a captive deer population allows us to do some discovery research that's more under uh, of a controlled environment. So that's been important for our product development and, and validation of some of our technologies. Like supplement gold. Yeah, I remember the first time we met with these guys <clears throat> and uh, they showed us that map of like different mineral properties in mm -hmm. the country, different states. And that was the most eye opening, I think, for you and Terry when you sat there and looked at just how deficient a lot of areas can be and what their product is then putting back into the herd to help that overall health. So that was an eye-opening moment for us back in those that first meeting. Absolutely. And it also showed us where the areas, if you look where all the big deer being yeah. killed, mm -hmm. you can see that, you know, the deficiencies were less in those areas. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that chart in a while. I'd love to see that again. Yeah. B-roll that baby. Yeah. They may not so want, it's very know. interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. Mm -hmm. 
We can have we can have yeah, Tim send I that send out to you ahead of time. Yeah, right, well, that's put, awesome. Put it up here on the B roll then for the post in post production. Yeah, you kind of teased this conversation last week when we were talking with our boys from First Form about like Kit said the supplements aren't necessary if you eat a perfect diet. Well, no person really eats a perfect diet, and no deer really eats a perfect diet either. Definitely, you think uh, of- I, I'll disagree with that. I am. I, I mean, look at it. Look at it. Yeah, you, you can tell Mark Freeze <laughs> has the perfect a diet. specimen, a mountain of a man. <laughs> I've hunted with Mark, and I—you've seen the diet. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know, that's it was a it was a good easy correlation because it's like, all right, so if you can't get everything you need, what you gotta supplement what you need. You you know that a, a wild herd, there's no way they can get everything they need, especially in their kind of grazing patterns. They're just sure. a little random, you know, and especially if your area doesn't have the things that they need in it, you really mm-hmm. have to supplement. So yeah. I, I think it was an easy, you know, correlation between humans versus kind of like your COVID correlation. It's, you know, if you have underlying issues, your chances of survival are just a lot worse. Yeah. So, so let's say someone's listening to this conversation. They realize, okay, I, I want to start on this on this path. I know it's not necessarily going to give me immediate benefits, but I want to start on this path as part of my management plan for my property. What are some of the the mistakes that you guys see people make when they initiate a supplemental feeding program? I see a lot of guys uh, starting a little bit too late as far as getting the, the nutrients to the deer before the really bad stress periods. Like right now we're hitting kind of the coldest part of our winter. And, uh, right now would be not not the time that I would want to just put a bunch of feed out that in an area that hadn't been any feed prior to this point, because there's obviously the chance that there could be some problems with digestion because a lot of the deer, if they haven't been supplementally fed, they could be on more of a browse diet. And if you switch them to a complete grain diet, there's problems with the digestion. But what I would suggest is guys hit it a little bit earlier and try and get it in front of the stress periods. So that it's more natural for the deer and then gradually increase the amounts so that you're really doing the best benefit that you can. So say there was a guy that just put some out. (laughs) (laughs) Hypothetically. Hypothetically. I mean. He's got a beard. (laughs) 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 Name the Matt. He has a podcast. The browse is, is less... It's not as good of browse as what is in available in Missouri right now. You know, like the, the, the type of browse that they're eating in Northern Minnesota is just way too high in fiber content compared to what they're in, eating in Missouri. There's still probably some Forbes that they have access to, which is a lot better, oh, easier digesting yeah. than what they're doing up farther north. Well, that's what I thought. Because <laughs> <laughs> their gut bacteria literally changes as a season. Don't, don't be cautious about feeding in this time of year because of the probiotics that we've put into supplement gold that helps digestive efficiency. If you just put straight corn out and, and only straight corn, that is even worse because that is just so much of the energy and the carbohydrates, but without the protein and the, the, the chances for acidosis is so much higher on a just straight corn diet. We, we, we knew that we well, were just, I, you, uh, I mean, I have heard that before that, that uh, you know, 
as the season rolls on, their actual digestive system changes with the season based on what's available yep. to them. I've heard that before, but, uh, and you see kind of, you kind of even see it in the late season when they start, you know, they're at the edge of the field, they're in the woods and you're like, what the hell are they eating? <laughs> it's like they're eating anything. It seems yeah. like they're like goats. Yeah. And they literally browse on anything. Yeah. Hmm. Really? So another thing on the supplemental feeding uh, piece of it is uh, one of the things that's changed over time as we look at the amount of residual crop that's left in the field after hunting season. Um, you know, the, the equipment today, uh, there's hardly any residual crop left in the point. field. And so I think supplemental feeding is more important today than what it has been in the past of just being able to provide those animals resources. Uh, during the winter months when food, you know, food resources are more scarce. Uh, so I think that's something that we've learned as well uh, and some of the benefits of supplemental feeding. And and one of the things that, uh, you know, we've, we've started to do is more phase feeding. And what that is, that's a principle that we use in, in livestock, particularly in swine diets, where we try to provide uh, the just the right amount of nutrients to that animal based on the requirement. And so like with uh, a lot of supplemental feeding programs that we customize for uh, land managers, uh, we'll feed different levels of protein depending on time of the year to better match up to that animal's uh, requirement for things like protein. So, you know, feeding a a 16% protein diet right now in the winter months isn't going to do us a lot of good. So there's going to be excess protein there that that animal's got to get rid of. And so we'll feed something closer to a 12% protein which better matches up to that animal's requirement. Then as we start approaching the spring months, when we start having does fawn and the bucks start to grow their antlers again, we'll increase that protein up because the protein requirement's higher. And so the uh, phase feeding allows us to to be more specific to the animal's requirement. And then when we have corn that's $5 plus or soybean meal that's trading at $450 a ton, we can really lower the cost of those supplemental feeding programs for the land managers that are feeding all year long by not overfeeding nutrients. Well, and we had Tim on, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago to talk about the liver analysis that you guys do. If folks didn't hear that, maybe, maybe touch on the liver analysis. Cause that, that probably has an impact on how you, you know, what your calculus is in terms of your supplemental feeding. Yeah. So basically we just take a liver from a harvested animal and then we do tissue analysis of the micro minerals. And it's basically like a report card of their mineral intake over the previous six, eight weeks. And then we compile that over enough samples that we can see like across a vast part of the whitetails range, they're consistently missing these four micro minerals. And that's the copper, zinc, selenium, and manganese. And they are micro minerals and they don't need as much of them, but they were not getting enough of them. So the normal people talk about antlers and minerals. They like to talk about calcium and phosphorus because if you ground up the bone, calcium and phosphorus are the number one and two ingredients. But what was interesting was that most of the results that we got, none of those deer had deficiencies in calcium and phosphorus. So they were getting enough of that from the environment. It was the micros where they were really deficient. And that's what we've really highlighted in all of our products. So... Glad you said harvested, just to clarify that that deer needs to be 
dead in order to take the liver from only be sampled yeah, the once. report card sucks for the deer because it's dead <laughs> you failed <laughs> ultimately you failed <laughs> but gosh i mean what what a, a a whole lot of useful information if you could see what your deer what had you know I, optimal amounts of and what it was deficient in and you guys have that programs available to anybody right you go to your website and you can yeah, you just go to the website and it's a uh, it's not cheap but as far as i know we're the only company that does that and a lot of that is, you know, it's vet clinics, you know, and actually doing the research. So it's, it's not cheap, but the, the information that can be gathered from that is absolutely vital to knowing what your specific herd is missing. I suppose and I'm going to remind everyone that is a pass through for us. We don't make any money on those report cards. We're doing that just to help out. Mm. And, and I suppose in the long run, it could be. It, it could be cost effective if you're not. Oh, sure. If you're avoiding feeding things that the deer don't need and, and you're dialing in on exactly what your herd does. Correct. It's basically like getting a soil sample. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, exactly. You uh-huh. know, it's like, all right, what do I need here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ironically, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, we have no problem going out and soil and sample every one of our plots and that cross X. Why aren't we doing a report turn for the deer? Makes sense. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about and, and get Tim and, and Aaron's thoughts on um, supplemental feeding in terms of feeding in a spot versus feeding in a in a plot or a, a larger space. And I always worry about social stress. I don't want my deer getting around each other because naturally they don't like to be around each other at certain times of the year. So I always have a tendency to put it out free choice. So the does, little bucks, everything has a chance to eat at the mm-hmm. table, right? Instead of putting it in a spot where, Mark, we've seen down in Texas, when you have a feeder, there's only going to be two or three that feed there. The big bully bucks get in and nothing else gets the opportunity to go there. Whereas in the Midwest, I want to make sure everybody gets a, a chance. So what are your so, thoughts on that? I, you know, I'm going to jump in there really quickly and then I'll turn it over to the uh, Tim and new uh, Aaron. But Mark, you're exactly right. In, in Texas, we have seen, I won't say feeder hog is a bad word, but you could take an extremely mature buck in Texas and they kind of monopolize that feeder. It's theirs. The nose don't get in. It's really theirs. Now, What's what I have found up in, in Minnesota is I have a spot that I have literally three feeders in a span of two to four hundred yards. And I'm starting to find out that the deer hitting feeder one are different than the deer hitting feeder two. Now I'm gonna preface this with saying the does are does, I don't count them, they could be going between them because I can't tell the difference. But the bucks, by and large, will pick a feeder or two and get very consistent in that. But I will have a whole separate set of bucks 200 yards away that I don't get one picture from the number one feeder. I get them all on the number two. And then I have a third feeder somewhere, and I might get a, a combination. But you really start to find, for me, that... I used to just have a couple big feeders that I found out I'm better off to have multiple feeding sites to minimize the social stressing that you talk about so, so regularly, because I, I'm convinced some of these deer are not allowing the other bucks in. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a dominance-based eating hierarchy in the whitetail herd, 
And there's benefits and there's trade-offs between both feeding techniques. The good part about using a feeder is that it's weather resistant. So if you get some sort of a warm front comes through, even this time of year, and you get a freezing rain, that could impact palatability of the feed on the ground in a long area. Whereas the feeder is going to be more watertight and you might have to clean out the ports a little bit, but it's, it's more of a consistent, you know, it's always there and the deer might be a little bit, you know, fighting over the feed at, at that single port, but eventually they'll pick, they'll establish their dominance hierarchy and you'll be able to get them feed more consistently. Whereas with the long spread out version, I mean, that everybody's going to have a plate. You just, as long as you can keep consistently adding to that plate, you know, that, that's a good way of feeding too. We do. And then we vary it as to where we put it, you know, like we'll put some here and then we go over here and put another line out. And I just want it as close to a natural residue within a, within a crop field to Aaron's point as they're used to, because the deer in the Midwest are used to going out in the field and, and, you know, picking up that, that residual, which is, as he said, a lot of efficient combines out there, it's not there anymore. So we spread in a lot of different places and, mm. and keep it as close to what they're used to as, as possible. Because in my mind, I just, I just don't want them next to each other. I, I want as little social stress as, as we can afford them. We've seen it before where you, we've tried feeders and, you know, it just, the result, what I noticed on the lease was that there was the does kind of took over certain times of the year. They will. It was amazing. And it, and the bucks would always be in the background and mm -hmm. you'd see them show up, but it might be a, a weird nocturnal hours when nothing else was around them. You, you know what I mean? So then I started like you just kind of spreading it out a little bit more and noticed that I had more bucks coming in and kind of taking over, pushing out the does. And so I don't know, I, I, you know, maybe it's different from herd to herd too. I have no idea. The only thing that I always worried about was, okay, Hey, there's rain coming or there's snow sure. coming. Like what do I need to do in that regard? You know, I usually put like three bags out at a time and maybe three different sites. You know, you're talking a couple hundred acres that I'm dealing mm -hmm. with there. So, mm -hmm. you know, I know for you, it's much different, a much different scale and level of what you're putting out. Do you worry about, and maybe this question for Aaron and Tim, you know, you touched on it slightly there, Tim, but what do you really have to worry about if you're just spreading it out in a line and it's not protected or covered from the elements, you know, do you need to look, pay attention to the weather and say, all right, if it's going to rain tomorrow, I, I should just hold off and wait until. Oh, absolutely. You know, we do, you know, yeah. we look for a dry period and put it out ahead of that dry mm -hmm. period and consumption is so fast. Oftentimes they intake, you know, incredible amounts in a very short period of time. Like it is not uncommon for us across around 3,000 acres there in Iowa to go through 20 ton in 14 days. But it's not uncommon at all. I mean, that's how quickly the consumption is. So we're just careful about when we put it out mm -hmm. and we try to make it last as long as we can. Sure. So, so I'm going to, I'll tie into that real quickly and then I'm going to turn it back to Aaron and Tim both. Um, to go back to your feeder comment, I was complaining with Tim I know there's some very specific bucks on my property and I'm not picking them up on cameras. And to mark to your point, that line and that um, Matt, your point, the does, I, I feel better now when I see the does at the feeder, 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 and I don't see the bucks because now I know that I'm feeding the does for the, the offspring. So that's a big deal to me. So I want them at that feeder. So I'm not as concerned of why am I feeding the does, but I've, I've had to go locate a few bucks to do an inventory lately 
And I have gone to exactly what Mark and Matt, you're doing. I've gone to line feeding and now I've picked them up, but I wasn't picking them up from the fever feeders running themselves. Now going fast forward a little bit, when you talk about seasonality of putting this product out, I really want Aaron to tie into mold because everyone talks about, you know, putting it out. What are your biggest concerns? The molds, if I, if it gets wet, first of all, Tim, we've had people that have said, you know, my, my product molded and they literally probably took eight bags and just built a pile, built a cone. Well, corn's going to mold. We know that that's not the effective mark. You're and Matt, you're exactly right. Put it in a line. Don't get it so deep that you're going to have molding issues. But Aaron, touch real briefly on mold and aflatoxins and everything that goes along with that, because that's important. Yeah. So um, on molds, you know, as we, as we look at our products, one of the things we do put in our products is a mold inhibitor. And we work um, in the lab to understand what that effective level of mold inhibitor is to increase shelf life of the product and also help it withstand uh, the elements. If it does set out in the environment, it does get wet uh, to prevent that mold growth. Um, with mold, uh, you start thinking about some of the molds that occur in, in crop fields like aflatoxin. Um, a lot of times, you know, we get concerned with mold uh, and certainly should be. Uh, if that mold gets stressed, because when mold gets stressed, that's when it starts to produce a toxin. But just because you have mold present doesn't always mean you have toxins present. But if that mold does get stressed, it's just a defense mechanism that releases those toxins. And then that becomes problematic. And you go back to things like EHD or Fusobacterium or Clostridium. The problem with those mycotoxins is they're immunosuppressive. So if there's if we've got mycotoxins, that's causing that immunosuppression. It's going to affect that deer's ability to respond to a disease insult. So one of the other things we think about on supplement gold and our products is ingredient selection. Um, so what do you mean by that, Aaron? Um, dried distillers grains. Um, those are that's a byproduct coming out of the ethanol industry, commonly used in livestock feed. One of the downfalls of dry distillers grains, particularly in crop years where we have a mycotoxin problem, uh, the fermentation process concentrates those mycotoxins by 3x. Hmm. So let's say, for example, if you had 100 uh, parts per billion of a mycotoxin in corn, in your dry distillers grain, it's going to be 300 units. And so it super concentrates those toxins. So we're very careful about using dried distillers grains in our products. We also do uh, mycotoxin screening of our raw ingredients that go into our products to make sure we don't have mycotoxin contamination in the first place. But not to knock other products in the marketplace, but that is a question uh, that you should be asking if you're doing supplemental feeding is the source of the ingredients. What is that company using in their formulations? Are they using corn that's been screened for mycotoxins? Hmm. Are they using dry distillers grains? Because a lot of times they're pretty cheap, uh, but they can come with some other problems, some other baggage, particularly in crop years where we have mycotoxin contamination. So uh, that becomes part of the puzzle as we start thinking about, you know, deer herd health. If we've got something like mycotoxins present, uh, that's another additive stressor that we're adding to that deer herd. 
Newman, anything you would add? No, I think that's a pretty good uh, summation of what you know the what could happen if mold gets into a pile of feed. But uh, one other thing that could happen on the line feeding is that you get more non-targets consuming feed. So your squirrels, your turkeys, your raccoons and stuff like that, whereas a feeder kind of limits those numbers. Obviously raccoons are ninjas and they'll get into pretty much any feeder, but <laughs> mm. that's another thing you can kind of lower is the amount of non-targets that are getting at the feed. We've learned if to somebody has a go ahead, Aaron. Well, if somebody has a feeder that's coon proof, I'm I'm all ears because that's <laughs> probably one of the challenges, biggest challenges I have with supplemental feeding using feeders is just the non-target species, particularly raccoons. And, you know, I think both uh, methods work. I know, uh, Mark Dury, you guys do a really good job of, of application and making sure it's out there at all times, as long as the weather permits uh, doing so. But what, what I see a lot of times, if you're not using feeders, is land managers that just do it one time per month. And the rest of the month, those deer don't have access to feed resources. That's not supplemental feeding. Yeah, it makes you feel good. But if we're going to make sure those animals are not limiting in resources, we really need to be out there and have feed in front of those animals at all times as much as possible. And that's where feeders do offer an advantage. But back to this, you know, um, aggressive behavior on feeders, the Texas study clearly showed uh, aggressive behavior with supplemental feeding on feeders. And so we do have some of those animals that are not eating out of the feeders. So if you've got feeders and you're using them, you know, I can make the argument and some I've been thinking about on my own farms, maybe I should be doing both, hmm. um, of all, you know, providing enough feeders to reduce that social stress, but also doing some line feeding, uh, for those animals that are, uh, you know, that are not coming to the feeder. Well, Aaron, I'm going to tell you, I used to be strictly feeder. I added more feeders and now I bought into Mark's theory that you got to have both. I have to have both. I'm doing both. But there's good, good sound reasoning for both. Essentially. Yeah. There really is. But for us, the other thing I don't like are feeders on the landscape. Just me personally, from an aesthetic standpoint, I don't like driving around every corner and seeing a big giant feeder there. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, I like the natural, you know, fields and woods and creeks and stuff. I just, I just don't like them. That's just my personal view, but that's just a, a, a quirk I have. But I, I do believe that, you know, line feeding is, is the best for, for the way mm -hmm. we do it. You know, we do it in the winter and then we make sure it's all consumed prior to turkey season. And then once turkey's over, then we start again in, in late May and then we'll keep them fed all the way through, you know, as, as, as long as the law will allow. Sure. You know, and in Missouri, I can't do it because I'm in a CWD county, but in Iowa and in Clark and Decatur, I can. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're just very careful about when we do it and how we do it. Yeah. Well, speaking of turkey season, we have a question of the day that's related to uh, turkeys. All right. So the question of the day is brought to you by Tenzing Packs. No matter where or how you hunt, we have a pack that's right for you and backed by a limited lifetime warranty. Hi, I'm Steve Porter, and I was curious if you guys had any tactics on hunting hend up turkeys during turkey season. Thank you for all the podcasts. They're great. Keep up the good work. 
He didn't sound like he was being sarcastic either. <laughs> Let, I'm going to default to Mark. Let's. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a question you get often, you know, the end up gobbler. Well, the first tactic I use, if you've got the land and you've got the, the time, I go try to find another bird and, and check him another day because mm-hmm. he's not going to stay hend up the entire season. If you're limited on resources and where you can go and you can just hunt that guy, then the best thing you can do is not over push the situation and go in there and blow him out of the country. You, you really need to employ some patience and it may take it may take one hour. It may take 10 hours. It may take a, a, a multiplicity of days to finally get on that bird when he's in the right mood. Hmm. Um, if you're low on time, then I try to call the hens into my position. Stop calling to the gobbler and start working those hens. Uh-huh. If you can get one of them vocal and start charging back on her and challenge her her hierarchy in the, in the flock, then you have a chance to bring that entire flock into hmm. your position. The last tactic I'll talk about, and it's really an extreme tactic, but I've had good luck on a bird that's hend up. I can't do anything with him. Nothing else is gobbling. If you can roost him with his hens and then go in there and scatter that flock, I've had really good luck calling that bird in the following morning, but it works best when you can scatter them the night before. Like, how do you do that? Go into the roost site and and just bump them out. And I mean, that's a very extreme <laughs> tactic. You go in there and they see you and, and they're going to fly about, you know, 10 different directions huh. if you're lucky. If they all go the same direction, you probably didn't have much luck. But I've had pretty good luck scattering birds in the spring, just like the, the theory in the fall. When you scatter the birds, you reflock them. It freaks him out when he loses his hens and when he's been used to having them. What about decoys? Is there a certain certain type of decoy setup you would use to try to help in a hen up situation? Absolutely. That, that avian... You know, half strut Jake. I have really good luck. If you can get that in a position where that gobbler can see it, that works. Also, the trophy Tom, if he's out in the field strutting with hens and you can get to where you can visualize with your trophy Tom within a hundred yards, you got to get in his, in his face, really. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to have success at bringing him in, especially if he's an old bird. Mm -hmm. We've killed a pile like that. Wait till they're in the right terrain, sneak around, get in front of them or get close, show them that fan, show them that trophy Tom, and you, you can kill that bird that's hend up. Boom. Right on. There you go, Steve. Straight. <laughs> right. He showed me. <laughs> okay. And let's hop into the wildlife word. It is brought to you by Muddy Outdoors, home of the highest quality products for serious hunters. So it's a multiple choice, guys, and everyone feel free to play along. What's the primary reason coyotes don't breed outside of uh, February and March? Is it A, the other months just aren't as romantic? B, there's not enough calcium for females to lay their eggs? C, females are infertile 10 months out of the year? Or D, none of your business? We always default to the guests. So why don't we do this? We have a cameo of my father. Hi, Wayne. Wow. Hey, Wayne. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm Mark. I'm wonderful. Good, good. I'm just, I'm mesmerized by your ability to talk fast. <laughs> you have to when you're around your son very often. <laughs> or, or you can't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> so getting back to the, Tim, you want to take the coyote question? Yeah, I'm going to say that they're not receptive 10 months out of the year. That'd be my Yes. See? Ding, ding. I'm assuming Matt's going to go with that answer. Yes. (laughs) See, Tim, that biology degree is already coming into into play for you. Good job, buddy. Ding, ding, ding. You guys win. You know, the lay of the eggs was a close second, though. (laughs) Tim always tries to trick me on these. (laughs) I will say that was the easiest one I've ever heard on this show. (laughs) I felt like like it. Well, last week was kind of a, I I feel bad for last week's question. (laughs) 
He so, really tried to mess me up last time. How many how many eggs does a typical Tom lay during a spring? <laughs> he tried getting me, but we caught it. We caught it. He makes fun of my public school education quite often. He's kind of a bully about education, isn't he? Yeah. Yep. And other things. <laughs> I like to shove people. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, we pretty much covered it. And, you know, I know there's a ton, ton of things that you could dig into with this topic, but if anybody has any questions, where can they contact you guys and, you know, you guys give them some help and guidance on this deal. We have uh, on our website, there's a contact us and I'm actually the one that checks all of those. So feel free to contact us at analogics.com and I'll respond as soon as I can. Great. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks for watching everyone. All right. Until next time. Peace out. DeerCast is giving you the chance to hunt with Mark and Terry Drury. Head over to DeerCast.com to enter.